0: Alrighty, if you want to come and find a seat again, that would be great. We're going to start reading the Bible together. Um, At City Light, we study the Bible each week because we believe that the Bible is God's living word to us, and um, as we read it and it's taught to us, it speaks personally to us. Um, So we're going to read from Acts chapter 10, verse 27 to 45. So if you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page number 935. Um, Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screen behind me so you can follow along up there. So starting at verse 27 of Acts chapter 10. While talking with him, he went on in and found that many had come together there. Peter said to them, "'You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man "'to associate with or visit a foreigner, "'but God has shown me that I must not call "'any person common or unclean.' That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, why did you send for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then, a man in a dazzling robe stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Therefore, I immediately sent for you, and you did the right thing in coming. So we are all present before God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Then Peter began to speak. In truth, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know that the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and curing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses, appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one, appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead." All the prophets testify about him, and through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also.
1: Alright, well good afternoon and welcome. Um, My name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great uh, you could be with us this afternoon. Um, Just kind of reaffirming what um, Karen said, um, next week, Family Sunday, it'll be great uh, to have you along there. It's great to be at a church that's kind of multi-generational. As a a parent who has a couple of young kids, it's awesome uh, having them kind of interact with people who are in older age groups who aren't their parents, seeing that it's not just my parents who take Jesus seriously, but people across generations who do. So it's massive. Um, we love being able to do that. And next week will be a great chance to, uh, to hang out with them. Um, yep, they'll be wearing onesies, but why should they have all the fun if you've got one as well? And why not? Jump in. It's about the only time you're going to have justification for it. So why not? Uh, but uh, that's next week in the park. The other one as well, Story of the Bible. So that kicks off tomorrow night. Um, that'd be massive to get along to. The regios have been great so far, Cobble was telling me. One thing that would be worth addressing at the moment, it's pretty girl-heavy. And, uh, and that's fine, um, because it could be the case that all the guys here thoroughly and completely know the Bible. Um, Ninety-odd percent have done a thesis or a PhD on the story of the Bible, so they're, they're willing to it. That could be the case, um, but there's a good chance it's not. Because if you've ever been to a wedding and you notice the difference between the bridesmaids' speeches and the grooms' speeches, you'll notice something about the sexes. When, when girls get up to give their speeches, a lot of them haven't done it before, and so they assume, given that I've never done public speaking, I'm probably not good at it, so I'm going to prepare really well. And they'll have, like, a bunch of really witty anecdotes that really fit and are appropriate and endearing and not too embarrassing, but the right sort of balance. And then they'll have something really genuine and sincere and lovely to say about the person at the end. And then the groomsmen get up, and he's got, like, a serviette or something, <laughs> or just nothing, because he thought... It's got to be that easy, and he'll go, um, yeah. So um, I, I haven't prepared anything, but um, just um, I remember this time, and then rattles off a whole bunch of awkward stories that are verging on inappropriate because they're better for a 21st rather than a wedding. And then at the end, he's like, oh, I've got to say something nice. to so will go, but nah, But seriously, Damo's just like is the best bloke. Like, um, and he's just, and, the, and they'll say something way over the top that can't be true. Like, oh, just any time you ever need anything, like he's there for you. So he's just like. Best, best bloke ever, but, you know, cheers. And that's it. <laughs> and the, the, reason is, the reason is that, like, for women, when you say, are you able to do something, they'll go, let me think that through. And if they say, I'm not sure, they're probably well and truly overqualified to do it. When a guy says, yes, I definitely can, there's a 90% chance he's dangerously incompetent at it. <laughs> so the reason I say this in terms of this uh, story of the Bible, causes, I think there are a lot of dudes out there who are like, yeah, I know the Bible, Abraham, Melchizedek, I don't know the, what's kind of going on, um, but I urge you to rethink that. Uh, on stats, uh, we would love to see some, some more dudes there. It should be the case that uh, you should be knowing the scriptures as well, so we don't have a church where all the women are biblically robust and thought through, and then we have a bunch of dudes who just have strong opinions about things but don't know much. So it's not too late to rejo, Put it on the slips later on. We'd love to see you there. Uh, it's going to be a great 10 weeks in the Bible. Get to it. But look, in terms of the passage that we're looking at today, we're right in the middle of the book of Acts, and we're at the turning point in the book of Acts. From from really the beginning to where we're up to now, the gospel has only gone out to people who are pretty much in the immediate vicinity where Jesus died and rose again. And all the Christians so far uh, have been people in that area, in Jerusalem. But as persecution breaks out, the Christians start to head out from that area and people are starting to hear the good news about Jesus for the first time in areas beyond Jerusalem. And as this begins to happen, and it'll be a theme that, we, that comes up again and again in the book of Acts, there's this clash of cultures. As, as people who are Jewish people and have been their whole lives and for generation after generation start to interact with other cultures as the gospel goes out, they struggle to adjust with it. I don't know if you've ever been to another culture, but you don't realise how significant your own culture is until you go to one where the cultural assumptions aren't the same. For a bunch of years, um, while I was doing youth ministry at Gladesville, we used to go at the end of the year over to Fiji each year as a mission trip. So instead of going off to schoolies, kids would come over and we'd build houses in the village and help out there. It was an amazing time. But when you, when you head over there, you realize very quickly that there are some cultural assumptions that we have about some pretty key things that are actually completely different. One of the first ones you'll notice if you've ever been to Fiji or I'm told any of the islands, one of the things that we really think differently about is time. They even have a thing they're quite actually self-aware about in Fiji. They'll call it Fiji time. And so if you set something for 1 p.m. Fiji time, it may happen at 1 p.m., or it may happen at 1 p.m. the next day, or anywhere in that 24-hour time bracket in between. One, one lunchtime on our last day, they were kind of doing a farewell, and it was beautiful. They had such generous people. They put on this thing called Lava, which is like an underground sort of like barbecue with coals. Incredible kind of spread. Like would have cost a bomb as well, but it was set for lunchtime. And lunchtime's the same over there, like 12 to 1. But it's like it's 12 o'clock, 12.30, 1, 1.30, 2... Three, four, five, 5.30, lunch is finally ready. And it's a massive spread too. And it's rude not to like eat as much as you can without passing out. So everyone's on the brink of almost blacking out. And they're, we're eating as much as we can to show that we are so thankful for the effort they've put in. We just finished that. We go down to the church for the kind of final farewell. And at 6.30 p.m., dinner is there ready for us. And everyone's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Romans 8.28, God God is all good for... for, How does that go again? I should remember. Anyway, whatever. But um, it's not just that. I mean, there are a whole bunch of cultural things once you're in their culture that you realise are totally different. The way they think about personal space or the way things are organised or whatever it is are, are completely different. And at that moment, you kind of have a... You can choose, you can either find these things continually irritating or you can try and start to understand the culture and understand why it is that they think differently and maybe people do things differently to us and it's not so particularly bad well the same thing's happening in this passage but it's far more significant Peter is heading out to the Gentiles to the non-Jews and this is the first time that this has happened not only in the history of his people but in biblical history God is actually sending his people out and his gospel message out to the Gentiles for the first time And a lot of their cultural customs that up until that point have been so significant for them, that have defined them as the people of God, are actually being caused to break down and God is doing that. And they're struggling to work out how to do that well. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that at this point God is declaring that the gospel is for everyone and so his people are called to do whatever it takes to reach every culture. The gospel is for everyone and so his people are called to do whatever it takes to reach everyone every culture, and I'm going to pray that His Spirit would give us eyes to see exactly that this afternoon as we look at Acts chapter 10. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You that You are a generous and loving God, that You have loved us with an everlasting love, and though we have not loved You in return, You sent Jesus to die for our sin, that in the gospel You proclaim the forgiveness of sins for all people from all cultures and all backgrounds and ethnicities. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at your word and what you are doing here through your servant Peter, that we'd be reminded again that your gospel has reached us because people have been sent out sharing the gospel message and you've used that to bring people home to yourself. And so, Father, we pray that you give us deep understanding this afternoon for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, chapter 10 opens in, a, in a, a city called Caesarea, and it starts in this way. It'll come up on the screen for you. Acts 10, sentence 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. The scene opens in Caesarea, which was the administrative center of Judea. That was the region that sort of had Jerusalem in it as well. And Cornelius, um, we're told there, is a centurion. In the army, in terms of modern rankings, he'd probably be an NCO, so that means he wasn't like a bigwig in the army, but he could tell people what to do, so he had some authority. Uh, Caesarea was, it was a garrison city. It was named after Augustus uh, Caesar, and it was a, a harbour city built by Herod the Great. Um, but to hear that his name was Cornelius and a soldier, it might sound like that's more of a name fit for a librarian rather than a warrior. But the reason a lot of them, it was a fairly common name, was about a hundred years earlier, a man named Cornelius, had, who was fairly wealthy, had actually set a whole bunch of slaves free, thousands even, and many of them were named Cornelius after him. So it's not unusual that we should find a centurion called Cornelius in Caesarea. And, uh, and here, we're told that he was a God-fearer. And this is a, a very specific term for the Jewish people. In the chapter before, after Paul is saved, we're told that immediately he starts preaching the gospel, and he argues with, it says, Hellenistic Jews. What that meant was Greek people who had converted fully to Judaism. That is, they had changed up their whole life. They now adopted Jewish customs and a way of living, as well as worshiping the God of the Bible. But someone who was a God-fearer was someone who worshipped the same God as Peter worshipped, but he hadn't converted culturally to Judaism. So he was still living as a Roman in Caesarea and yet worshipping God. We're told he had a reputation for following God and that it played out in his life as he gave generously to the poor, as he prayed continuously, he and all his household. And so we're told here that at the ninth hour, he's praying. That's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And there were a few prayer times during the day and 3 p.m. tended to be one of them. And so he's praying and when this happens... He is suddenly confronted by an angel of the Lord, and it says he is terrified of him. Now, oftentimes, the vision that we have of an angel is kind of like a a blonde-haired surfer boy in a white dress um, who really, I mean, we have no description like that in the Scriptures. And in fact, it's fairly unlikely that that's what they look like, given that this guy was a centurion and pretty familiar with bloodshed, and yet he's terrified if a guy showed up at his door just looking like that with long flowing locks and, and, a, and, a, and a white dress, he'd say, look, the nail salon is a few doors down. You've missed it. But I doubt he would have been terrified. But he is. He's terrified. And he says, what is it, Lord? He knows that this is a messenger from God with a message for him. And he says to him, go and send for, for Simon, who is named Peter, over in Joppa. He says, this, this, this apostle... You need to get him out here to Caesarea to preach the gospel to you. And he obeys. He sends uh, one of his soldiers and a couple of servants to go along with him. And they head out to Joppa, which is no small journey, by the way. It's about 50 kilometers. So that's about the distance from here to Gosford. So he sends them out, not knowing this man at all, just trusting that God knows what he's doing. And so we pick up the story with Peter in sentence 9. Chapter 10, Sentence 9, it says this The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him Rise, Peter kill and eat but peter said by no means lord for i've never eaten anything that is common or unclean and the voice came to him again a second time what god has made clean do not call common this happened 3 times and the thing was taken up at once to the heaven uh, to heaven so as the soldier and the servants are making their way to joppa the next day around midday so cornelius has prayed at 3pm the day before the next day as people are on the way Uh, He's praying around midday. He's hungry and he sees a vision. This sheet coming down from heaven with all types of animals on it. And God says to him, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, I've I've never eaten this stuff, God. I, I won't do it. And God has to affirm to him again that this is what he is to do. Why is Peter so averse to eating these things? Is it because it's a sheet full of like snakes and birds and he's just like, he's like, oh look, I'm no master chef, but they don't really, I can't eat that kind of stuff, right? Is that why he's resisting it? Is is it because he's a vegan? Well, no, because he would have told everyone by now. But um, I wasn't sure whether to put that one in there. But um, he's doing this because as a Jew, he knew that he was not allowed to eat this food. That actually there were, there were certain customs that God had actually instilled for his people. And they weren't to eat things. A pig was considered an unclean animal. And to eat it was to make yourself unclean. See, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, had all kinds of food laws and customs that were set up to mark them aside from the cultures around them. They were set up to be different. They were were to be set apart. God said, I have called you to be holy like I am holy. You should be different from the nations around you. The idea was that they would follow God and they would stand out among all the nations around them. That the way they did governance, the way they looked after the poor, the way they worshipped God was to be entirely different to the nations around them. Unlike the nations that had idols that they would bow down and worship, Israel was to have no image representing God in their people. More than that, they would have, have treat the poor very differently to the nations around them. They would have been entirely different. And the idea was this, that as they worshipped God and as they were different, the nations would come to them and they'd be drawn to them. And at the peak of Israel's kingdom, when Solomon is king, and, and their borders are as far as they're ever going to get, and they are in a time of prosperity and peace, and everything seems to be going well, the queen of Sheba, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, comes up to learn wisdom from king solomon it's like they're actually living out what they were supposed to do in actually bringing this nation under god all the nations are starting to learn from them and to to be drawn to them and so this was how it worked so why has it changed why has god suddenly switched it up is it because in the story peter's hungry and he starts praying and god's like you know what He's been beat up for the gospel. Just give that man some bacon. You know, cut him some slack. It's been a rough trot so far. Why has he suddenly switched it up? Well, in truth, he hasn't. This isn't just a concession for Peter. This began in the book of Mark. In the gospel, Jesus is the one who brings this about. In Mark 7 15 to 21, Jesus is interacting with some people who are asking him questions about the laws. People who believe that if they just follow particular laws in the Old Testament, they will be right before God. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, these evil things, come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus says it's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. These food laws were never set up because they were the way that if you just avoid certain foods, you can be a person who's right before God. He says, no, they were markers to to distinguish Israel from the other nations around them, but they were not the means by which they would be right before God. They don't deal with that at all. When Jesus comes along, he changes it because he does deal with our uncleanness and our sin. He takes the penalty for our sin on the cross and fulfills that penalty completely by facing the death we deserve for it. And not only that, but he sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts to begin to change us and take away the power of sin over us, bit by bit. See, when Jesus comes, he marks us a distinct break in the Bible, a change of gears and a change of directions. See, in the Old Testament, I've come up on the screen for you, done a short sort of illustration. But in the Old Testament, the way that God saw his people reaching the nations was by being holy and different and distinct, and the nations would come to them. But when we reach the New Testament, it switches up. And the people of God are sent out from Jerusalem. In fact, the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts 1.8, he says to them, you will be, he says, Wait for the Holy Spirit, who will empower you to be my witnesses, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Rather than drawing the nations in, God is sending his people out. This change in mission has a huge impact, and here in particular, it's affecting their food laws. God says, I'm now sending you out. I'm not calling you to be distinct here in this one little geographical location. I'm going to send you out. And so he says to Peter, these foods are clean. Jesus signified that there is a a change in God's mission and how he's reaching people. And Peter gets this. And so when the guys come to see him, he goes with them immediately. Even though he knows that as a Jew, he shouldn't associate with someone who's not But when he hears them, after seeing this vision three times, he goes with them. And we pick up the story in sentence 27, as he arrives in Caesarea to speak to Cornelius and all who are gathered there. It says, as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. See, Peter knows that the gospel is to go out to everyone. He knows that these cultural barriers that once kept them separate have changed because God has signaled that now He's doing something new. After having sent His Son to win salvation for His people, to fulfill all the Old Testament, He is now sending His people with this good news out to the nations. That's why He says to them, He says, Look, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with you guys, and yet here I am, because something different has happened. It's Jesus. He's declared that the gospel is for everyone and therefore his people are called to do whatever it takes to reach every culture. This would have been a massive deal for Peter. It's hard for us to imagine how difficult this would have been for him to do or to overcome. I was trying to think of, of something that would be even a remote cultural equivalent for us. What would be something that would be as taboo as this? And it's hard, because we're a kind of a progressive culture, we kind of take pride in desacralizing things. So we don't have many sort of customs or things that are kind of held in real honour. But if if there was one thing that would maybe even represent this in a small way, looks and how people would be thinking about you talking about you whatever it is during that time think of what people would do around you times that by a thousand and that's what it was like for a jew to break these customs for him to associate and go into the house of someone who wasn't a jew to eat with them to eat foods that had been declared previously unclean think of that by like uh, the anzac day moment by a thousand So you might be thinking God had to go to incredible lengths to convince Peter to do this. I mean, he sent Jesus. Jesus declared all foods clean in front of them and explained that to them. Then he gives Peter a vision. And if you notice, he sees the vision three times, the same thing over and over again. Then he gives a vision to to Cornelius over in Caesarea. Then when Peter gets there, the Holy Spirit gives him another word to affirm that he should be there. Why is God going to all these lengths? Because it would be so hard for a Jew of that day to believe that this is what God really wanted them to do. And yet he had, because Jesus had changed everything. And so Peter preaches Jesus, his death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection, and the people there receive the Holy Spirit and believe. They know and are confirmed. All the people who came with Peter see that now the gospel is for everyone. That they're now called to break down all these cultural barriers and to continue to go out to them to reach people who don't know Jesus, who have no relationship with God. He says, God shows no partiality. Anyone who believes in Jesus has their sins forgiven, regardless of their ethnicity, their cultural background, or what they've been like their entire life. The gospel is for everyone. So these people are to do whatever it takes to reach them. See, sometimes, I mean, it seems obvious in this story in some ways, but sometimes it can be hard for us to overcome our own cultural barriers and assumptions in order to reach people with the gospel. When the first fleet came over to Australia... There was a chaplain as a part of that group. A missionary came soon after, and then a few missionaries after that. But in the main, the mission to the indigenous people of Australia failed. And it failed for one key reason. It wasn't because no one was reaching new people groups at that time. John Patton had been to the New Hebrides and seen incredible success. They converted almost the entire island of Vanuatu. And that was in the face of cannibalism and tribal warfare and all kinds of difficulties. So it wasn't that. The big problem that they had in Australia was that the missionaries that came over were unable to separate being Christian from being English. And they thought that they had to civilize the indigenous people before they could share the gospel with them. So instead, and this wasn't for every missionary, I mean, many of the first people to study indigenous languages were Christian missionaries who got it and saw that we don't have to teach them English so they can understand the gospel. We need to understand their language because God is the God of all peoples. But many struggled with that. And they thought, these people really need to be civilized. They need to come into, into a white British society, understand English and our customs before they can understand the gospel. And British culture and the gospel got too confused and they failed to reach them. And there were tragic stories like the case of Benelong, whom the electorate just over is named after, who was taught to be civilized and in the end was never really accepted by polite white society and never really accepted by his own people again. Because they didn't get it. That the gospel is for everyone and it goes across cultural boundaries. But when you consider Hudson Taylor, who began the China Inland Mission in the 19th, mid-19th century, he didn't go hoping to convert them to British Christianity. He, came, he went hoping to convert them to Jesus. And so when he went there, he learned to speak like someone who was Chinese. He learned the local language. He dressed like the Chinese. He ate like the Chinese and he lived like the Chinese. And in that way, he brought the gospel to the Chinese. And today, there are more Christians in China than there are are people in Australia. And it began with the China Inland Mission, and it survived the Cultural Revolution and all the missionaries being executed or sent out of the country because they took the gospel to them. So we have to get this. The gospel is for everyone, so we are called to go and reach people on their terms and on their turf. And sometimes this can be the problem with the church. So even though we don't live in, a, in first century sort of Judaism, sort of coming to Christianity, we can still sometimes set it up the same way. We can sometimes set it up so the only way that we expect to reach people is by them coming to us. We can have a, even a church culture that's kind of like, it's, I'd like to call it the field of dreams sort of a mission scheme. If you know, great, there's like two people in the field. I wasn't even expecting that, so I've got the full backstory here to explain this movie. Um, this was like a, like a mid, this is like way, way back, a mid-80s movie. It was just like an 80s feel-good flick, and it was, it was a re- like a reasonably small budget film that made way more than they were expecting to. One of the Kevins was in it, Costner or the other one, Bacon. I can't remember which, I always going it mix up. But anyway, the storyline is this. A novice farmer uh, buys a farm and, uh, and is thinking how he's actually going to turn a profit from it. And while he's out in the field, he hears a voice and it says, if you build it, he will come. And, uh, and then he sees a vision of a baseball field where all his crops are. And he decides that someone or something is telling him to tear down all his crops and to build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere. And the whole film is him talking with people and they're trying to work out if he's gone completely insane or whatever. But he hasn't. In the end, um, some kind of ghost baseball players turn up. <laughs> I'm re- like It's probably a good move. I'm, the- I'm making it sound terrible. But... Um, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's uh, all these sort of baseball players from the past sort of show up and, uh, and then people start flocking to it and they're paying money and he actually turns you know an incredible prophet out of this thing he built this field in the middle of nowhere just trusting that people would come and they did but when it comes to mission sometimes the church can have like a field of dreams mission mindset if we build it if we just build a, a good Sunday gathering then people will just start showing up and get saved but it's not the case It wasn't how the gospel went out in the first century, and it's not going to be how it continues to go out in the 21st century. The gospel is for everyone, and so we are sent. In the Old Testament, God gathered people to himself. He was to draw the nations to Israel. But when Jesus arrives, he sends his people out. And while we'll continue to gather and to build one another up in love, we are called day by day and week by week as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to continue to go out and to reach people. And that's why at City Light we're organized into missional communities. See, missional communities, we we say, are are a family of missionary disciples sent to make disciples. That's our avenue for actually going out and reaching people on their terms and on their turf. And we're to do this because we are sent, knowing that the gospel is for everyone, to reach people where where they're at rather than just to wait and hope that people show up. And if you are and you're here and you're someone who doesn't know Jesus yet and you've come... Thank you so much for coming. I know it's a culturally weird experience. You're stepping into a, in what it seems like almost a foreign environment. But in the main, we're called to go and meet people on their terms. And so in missional communities, we're looking to do this better as we grow as missional communities. So, you really, If you break your, down, your life down into a couple of things, you'd really say at any given time, you're doing one of four things. You're either eating, you're working, you're celebrating, or you're recreating. And like someone's going to be like, oh, what about sleeping? Well, if you can evangelize in your sleep, then well done to you. But for the rest of us, we're doing those four things. And so what we want to do as missional communities is to sit down at the beginning of the month and say, right, given that we're all doing those four things, and those are, the, those are the terms and the places where other people live and dwell, we want to meet people there. How are we going to do that well as a missional community? So this week, my missional community sat down. We looked through those things and thought, what's coming up this week? Well, some people would go to the gym and they're like, why don't we all just go to the same one and we'll invite some of our friends and they'll get to know some people there as well. Others were playing touch footy on the weekend and so a couple of others have joined in with them because they get to meet people there as well. We prayed through people, people what's happening at work and a couple of people had um, bosses or, or colleagues who were going through a pretty rough time and so we prayed for them. Um, but they were going to see if over the next week if there's anything we can help out, if they need meals cooked for them, if there's any way that we can show them just simple ways of showing love. For others it was thinking through just how we use our meals at work and actually thinking during meal time instead of just having that as as my time by myself, I'm going to actually sit with some other people and get to know them and hear their story. So we thought through all these things and thought how is it that we can actually start to think how are we going to meet people on their terms and love them and to share Jesus with them. I could keep going through it, but I won't. You get the idea, right? We are a sent people. We're sent to reach people for the sake of Jesus, knowing that the gospel is for absolutely everyone. So remember, if you, if you are here and you're someone who's unconvinced of Jesus and you think the gospel or this message about Jesus or religion or organized religion or whatever it is, is just not for me. It's really not the case from this. Like I remember meeting a friend at soccer one time who was, had an Irish Catholic background and I asked him about if he had a faith. And he said, oh, I kind of do. And he said, but look, it's like it's good you go to church and you're a part of that, but he's like, it's not for me. And I said, in what, in what sense is it not for you? And he said, well, for me, I'm too far gone. And what he meant as we talked about it was that he felt that, that Christianity was people, for people who'd done like a few sort of garden variety things wrong and maybe wanted to clean their life up, but not for people who'd made a real mess of it. And so for him, he was like, look, that's, that, that sort of stuff isn't really for me. That's for people who are of a particular cultural type. And I got to explain to him that that's not the case. That Jesus came for everyone, that the gospel is for everyone. That's why we can cross cultural boundaries. It's not for a particular type of people or people group or ethnicity. It's for all people because there's only one God and one spirit and one gospel. And if you are here and you're a Christian, what are you doing to reach people who don't yet know him? What do you need to share the the gospel joy and hope that you have with people who don't yet know him? Let's think through those rhythms again. Think about your, your working week. How are you at work? Is work primarily a space where you make money? Is that how you tend to think about it? Is it primarily something that you just survive week to week? Or do you see yourself as a missionary who knows Jesus sent into that workplace? Because that would change things, wouldn't it? To say, actually, I should think about work differently. If I believe there's a creator God, then work is a gift and a way that I can imitate and be in the image of my creator as I create things, as I work, as I'm productive. Do you see it as an opportunity to actually to reach people? To say, I'm not just going to make friends or network with people who might give me some kind of advantage in my career, but I'm going to speak to the people who normally get ignored at work and show that kind of gospel generosity like Jesus did when he was walking on earth? Do you think I'm going to make the effort to meet people and actually make new connections because I want to share Jesus with as many people as I can and I might be hurting people at work who are really struggling and need a friend right now? The gospel is for everyone. you are going to do whatever it takes to reach people. Think about how you use your meals this month. Could you set aside some money to actually have people around and show hospitality? And welcome them into your home. Could you take some extra food to your mother's group or to the group at work or whatever it is so that you might show some kind of gospel generosity to them in a small way? Are you going to commit to eating with others at work every day rather than eating alone? As an introvert, whenever it came to lunchtime at work, that was my, like, and as a teacher, I'd be speaking all day and when it came to lunchtime, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to speak. Like, this is my silent time for like 20 minutes. That's all I get but that's not the mindset of someone who's there as a sent missionary. And oftentimes, uh, in the last job I had, I had an office pretty much on my own. I shared it with one other person who was only part-time. So if I wanted to, it was, it was a perfect introvert space. And instead, I thought, I need to get out of that mindset and I need to go and meet other people. So when we had activities in class where I needed to use lollies or something like that, I'd just get an extra big pack so that afterwards I could go around to the other and say, look, we've got a whole bunch left over. And it was just a good chance to talk to people. It's only small things, small shifts but a way of thinking about how it is that we're going to reach people. When you recreate, do you exercise alone? Could you join a gym where you're going to meet people? Or do it with some other people in your MC? If you join a team, you're going to join a team of just all Christians that you actually know, or actually deliberately say, we're going to join a team of people we don't know. So we might meet some new people. When you celebrate, as you think about public holidays and the times that our culture actually celebrates things together, you're going to see those as opportunities to bring people that that you know who know Jesus and who don't, together, your birthdays or whatever else it is that's coming up. we could go on and on and on about these things as we think them through, and hopefully we're going to continue to grow in this as a church. But we see the principle, right? Here, the gospel is going out. Peter crosses cultural boundaries because he knows we're not waiting for them to come to us, we're going out to them. And he goes out boldly. I want to finish with this story from Hudson Taylor's autobiography. This is towards sort of the middle end of his ministry. And he's uh, doing some gospel work in a province called Ningpo. And he says this, On one occasion I was preaching the good news of salvation through the finished work of Christ when a middle-aged man stood up and testified before his assembled countrymen to his faith in the power of the gospel. And this is in quotation marks, the man speaking. I have long sought for the truth, he said earnestly, as my father did before me, but I have never found it. I travelled far and near without obtaining it. I found no rest in Confucianism, Buddhism, or Taoism. But I do find rest in what I have heard here tonight. Henceforth, I am a believer in Jesus. This man was one of the leading officers of a sect of reformed Buddhists in Ningpo. A short time after his confession of faith in our Saviour, there was a meeting of the sect over which he formally presided. I accompanied him to that meeting, and there, to his former peers, he testified of the peace he had found in believing. Soon after, one of his companions was converted and baptized. Both now sleep in Jesus, as in they passed away. A few nights after his conversion, he asked how long the gospel had been known in England. He was told that we had known it for some hundreds of years. What? he said, amazed. Is it possible that for hundreds of years you have had the knowledge of these glad tidings in your possession? And yet, have now come to preach. Have only now come to preach it to us. My father sought after the truth for more than twenty years and died without finding it. Why did you come no sooner? You may not find yourself on the other side of the world preaching Jesus, but how many people in our families, friendship groups, workplaces, if they were to come to faith in Christ, would say, "Why didn't you tell me sooner?" We have the gospel, this message of salvation, free salvation to all who believe. It crosses all cultural barriers. It is for absolutely everyone. And so our call is to do whatever it takes to reach people for him. Let's pray that he would empower us to do so. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of all mercy and grace and kindness. That your gospel knows no partiality, but you save people from all cultures, backgrounds and ethnicities that you are building for your church, yourself a church from every tribe, nation and tongue that on the last day we'll sing the praises of Jesus. And Father, we pray that as your church you would continue to build us up and strengthen us that we might have a heart to reach, reach people. That our desire would be to share this free gospel and this free grace with anyone who, with whom we can. We pray that your spirit would empower us to do this with all joy and hope and strength knowing that you alone are the one who can save, that you alone are good. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to have a chance to think and to reflect on those things. And then we're going to, after that, have a time to, uh, chance rather to respond in praise and song.